Amen. I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll fill in the sound with my beatboxing real quick. No worries. Uh, well, hey, good morning. Welcome to the Springs. I, I would beatbox, but I have no rhythm. And uh, some would even claim I'm, I'm tone deaf sometimes with my voice. So uh, I think that I can sing. My wife doesn't, so I'm not even going to try to fill in the noise. We're just going to jump straight into it. Uh, really excited to be here and to worship with you guys this morning. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, or if you're joining us online, my name is Pastor Alberto. I help lead this church with a team of elders with Jesus being the chief elder of this church. Uh, I have the privilege of leading this church. Jesus is the head of this church. And so uh, we gather uh, on Sunday mornings to worship. Uh, everything that we're doing right now is about worship. When we, when we gather and we sing songs, we're not singing songs uh, just because it's a fun, cool thing to do, but we're worshiping God. Uh, I love what Pastor Chris Millar said uh, last week if you were with us. He said, you know, uh, some people say they don't like the songs. That's fine. We're not singing to you. We're singing to Jesus. And so when we gather, we gather to worship and sing songs to Jesus. And so when we're worshiping, I encourage you, sing out loud. Uh, I am the worst singer in this room, and uh, I am singing out loud because there's something that happens when you're actually saying these words out loud that causes your mind to think about the God that you're singing about. And oftentimes when we're not singing, what can happen is that our, our, our thoughts can run a thousand different directions and we can be consumed thinking about the worries or the anxieties that may plague us. But when we worship out loud, there's something powerful that happens where we declare that the God that we're singing about transcends all of the earthly problems that we're going through. So we gather to worship in song, and then we worship God in prayer. We, we lift up prayers to him because we want to connect to the heart of God, and, and we worship in the word. So when we open up the word of God and we have this time of preaching, uh, this is not a TED Talk. Uh, we were joking in pre-service this morning. I was like, it'd be cool to have like a red rug right here so I could feel like I'm giving a TED Talk, but that totally misses the point because this is not a TED Talk. This is a moment of looking into the word of God, examining our hearts through the word, and then being challenged and transformed by the Holy Holy Spirit so we can live out this word. Uh, the word of God was given to us for our transformation. It's God's message to us and we look at the word so we can be transformed by the word. And then my favorite part uh, is that we gather together. Uh, we gather to fellowship together, to be in community. Jesus died to create this. Jesus died to form this. And so following Jesus is not this isolated event where you do Christianity on your own terms. Rather, following Jesus is this call to do it together, to be a family on mission together. And so in many ways, what's happening this morning is to sort of serve as a reminder of what should be happening Monday through Saturday. That, that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we have the opportunity to engage in community and live with one another and be spurred on in the faith. Uh, that throughout the week we have the opportunity to open up the word of God and see what's been made available to us and submit our lives to that word and, and, and walk in union with Jesus. Uh, that, that Monday through Friday we have this privilege to connect to the heart of God through prayer. And if, in many ways what's happening here, what, what my prayer is that would happen here is that you come in from your mission field, wherever that is, whether it's the office, whether it's the classroom, whether it's, uh, you know, Ubering or doing favor, wherever God has placed you, that's your mission field. And my prayer is that you come here to be refilled and refreshed because you've just been laboring for the Lord all week long, living on mission and in union with him, only to leave here, to go into your mission field, to go give yourself to the Lord all over again in worship, to come back here, to be refreshed, refilled, and then go back and do it all over again. We gather 
not just so we have an event to do on Sunday. We gather to worship God. We gather to be filled and formed by God so that we can leave and enter our mission field and go make much of Jesus, then come back, be filled and formed all over again, and then keep doing it until we die. Uh, and, and, and what's so great is that different seasons, you know, different uh, times and different seasons will, will look different and church will feel different. But ultimately, we gather to worship the Lord and praise him. And so one of the most dangerous places that we can find ourselves, all this to say, one of the most dangerous places we can find ourselves is you showing up to church as an event on your calendar and leaving uh, and entering into a normal life and not putting this word into practice. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is to show up, check this off your list, do your religious activity, hear the word of God, worship God, and then go live a godless life through the way that you carry yourself. Live a godless life in the way that you shepherd and parent and discipline your kids. Live a godless life in the way that you interact and do relationships with others. Live a godless life as you're making coffee or serving or teaching wherever God has placed you. That's one of the most dangerous places we can find ourselves in. And that's the exact thing that James is addressing. You see, when we read the book of James, uh, James is what many scholars and theologians and smarter people than me call a horizontal book. James is a horizontal book. In other words, it's a master class. It's a manual on how to live the Christian life. Uh, We see Paul is great on writing these vertical books like Romans that really display the greatness and awesomeness of God. James uh, is is writing to a group of people and showing them how you actually live this life out once you come to faith in Jesus. Uh, And it's important that we understand that. It's important that that, that, that we um, conceptualize that because if not, we'll read the book of, we'll read a book like this And we'll see the life that James is calling us to. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's going to be completely impossible to live out. The starting point to living out the faith, the starting place for uh, living like Jesus is first being with Jesus and being in a relationship with Jesus. And so that's what the book of James is showing us. It's this sort of horizontal living. And so for the past weeks, we've been talking about this. This The series is called A Faith That Works because faith works. Uh, Faith is not passive. Faith moves. Faith has a movement. It moves towards God and towards others. And James is showing us what that looks like. So with that, we're going to look at probably what's the most important section, uh, the thesis uh, in the book of James. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Uh, If you have a Bible... Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. If you don't, I encourage you to look at the screen or write these verses down uh, and Google them later. Uh, But James chapter 2, look at these words with me. Uh, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Verse 23, and the the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we worship you for making this moment possible. We praise you that your death on the cross secured for us something that we cannot build on our own, and it is the church, the congregation, the community of faith. And Lord, as we gather together, I pray uh, that that you would supernaturally open up our hearts and our ears, our minds to see you. Um, It is... Um, it, it's, not, it, it's, it's not new news. Everyone in here has walked in with some sort of fear, some sort of anxiety, some sort of worry, some sort of distracting experience uh, that, that could cause us to look away from you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that in this moment you would still those storms and let us see you. Let us experience your presence. Lord, that's my cry, the same way uh, that, that Moses declared that unless your presence goes with me, um, I, I will not go. I will not depart from here. And Lord, I pray that your presence would come meet us here and that we would be transformed by your presence as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Uh, So one of the most important questions uh, that that we have to ask ourselves uh, that depending on how we answer, it has great implications on the way that we live our Christian life is this. What role did you have to play in your salvation? What role did you have to play in your salvation? And this is such an important question because depending on how you answer this question will set you off into a trajectory of either pleasing God through your works, through your striving, through your performance, or being settled in this secure position that God loves you no matter what. What role do you have to play in your salvation? You see, uh, what, what, what the scriptures say is that salvation comes through grace by faith. And that salvation is not something that we earn or that we strive towards or that we work for. Rather, salvation is a gift to be received. And, and from the very beginning, from the early church, from the inception uh, uh, of the New Testament church that we see in Acts, one of the greatest debates, one of the greatest arguments that we see happening is trying to settle what role do works play in us coming to God. You see, every single religion in the world, even non-religious systems and structures, it's all performance-based. It's all transactional. If you do something good, what, what do you think will happen? Something good will come in return. And if you do something bad, then something bad will happen to you. Uh, I used to live my life like this, thinking uh, that, that I have to be, uh, I remember in high school having these very vivid thoughts that I must become a good person so that good things will happen in my life. And if I do bad things, then I have to do enough good things to offset it. I, I literally thought, I, I was like, I mean, I should call this something. This is like so genius. Uh, I thought I invented this idea of karma. 
uh, and that's how prideful and, and dumb I was. And, and that's how I lived my life. And, and if we're honest, that's how we live our lives. It's, it's transactional. That if, if you can be a, a good spouse, and maybe your spouse will love you in return. If you can be a good friend, then you can expect uh, good things from your friend. If you're a good employee, then, then you'll rise up the ranks. And every system in the world is transactional. And what ends up happening is that we kind of carry that idea, that mode of thinking into our relationship with God. Where we think that if I can be a good person, then God will be pleased with me. That if I do the right things, or if I do good things, God will accept me. And, and, and that sort of, you know, helps spur on good living, good moralism. But then what happens when you do bad things? What happens when you not only fail your friends and fail your family and fail your employer, uh, what happens when you experience this great moment of failure towards God? Where does your mind go? Well, surely God must be disappointed with me. Surely God does not love me. Maybe God is not satisfied with me. Maybe God does not delight in me. And we can live our lives on this sort of roller coaster. Does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he love me? Does he love me not? And our relationship with God can seem uh, like this bumpy road where you never know it's going to go. And it all depends on you. And what's so amazing about the gospel, the reason why the gospel is good news is because your relationship with God is vibrantly flat. Your relationship with God is flat. And what I mean by this is that your relationship with God is not elevated when you're a really good person and your relationship with God uh, does not go down when you're a bad person. Your relationship with God is incredibly consistent. Not because you're a consistent person, but because God is. And God is love. And your relationship with God is incredibly flat. And what this means is that regardless of how good you are on your best days or how bad you are on your worst days, God's position, God's favor towards you, God's view of you, God's thoughts of you don't change. God loves you. God is satisfied with you. God approves of you. God delights in you. Why? Because God loves his son. And his son died for you, and his life is in you if you're a Christian. And so what this means is that you can have this sort of eternal security and peace, what the scriptures call assurance, that you have a flat relationship with God, vibrantly flat, that he loves you, that it's not like up and down, up and down. God is consistent towards you, regardless of who you think you are or what you've done. And this is what makes salvation, this is what makes the gospel good news is that your status in being adopted and being brought into the family of God is not one that you work towards, it's one that you receive. Now think about this, what role do you play in receiving a gift? Uh, You're just present when the gift giver comes and you say yes. Same thing, what role do you play in your salvation? You're just present when Jesus calls you and you say yes to him. I love what one theologian said. Uh, what role do we play in our salvation? He said, the only role we, we, the only thing we contribute to our salvation are the sins that made the death on the cross necessary. That's all you brought to the table was your need to be saved. And Jesus comes and he rescues you and he redeems you and it has nothing to do with your best days or your worst days. It's completely dependent on God's love pursuing you 
and chasing you down and adopting you and bringing you into his family. So if you're in this room and you're struggling with assurance, if you find yourself on this back and forth, does God love me? Am I really saved? I want you to have peace. I want you to be secure because you had nothing to do in saving yourself. Jesus came and lived for you, died for you. He showed up in your life. He called you. You responded in faith. And understand this. Jesus is far more concerned with sustaining you and keeping you. He is way more capable and able of carrying you and crossing you over into eternity. Now unto him who is able to keep us from stumbling is what the scriptures say. So if Jesus doesn't spend a moment doubting your eternity, then you don't need to spend another lifetime doing it. Jesus has saved you. Jesus loves you. Now, why why do I... Uh, bring this up because what we see happening in the scriptures is that when Paul the apostle Paul he's a smart he's genius a lot of his scriptures have to do about uh, uh, him unpacking and breaking down to us what this salvation looks like how this salvation is possible and Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 in Galatians chapter 2 in parts of Roman that salvation is a gift from God that 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 your works uh, are useless in saving yourself that God saves you, that he restores you, that he redeems you based off grace through faith alone. You do nothing to earn or deserve it. But then we get to this book in James, and James just goes off on works. James is like, uh, you're not a Christian because your works aren't good. Uh, How dare you not love the poor and the marginalized? How dare you not live the way God has called you to live? Surely, uh, faith isn't inside of you. And so for the longest time, there's been this this argument, this, this, this issue in the scriptures, how do we reconcile that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works? And then we see James just go off and on and on about works and how important works are in the life of a believer. Well, what we see James doing here is that he's not talking about pre-conversion works. James is not talking about pre-conversion works. James is talking about post-conversion works living. So if you want to understand the book of James, if you want to apply this book to your life, first you have to understand that this book has nothing to do with pre-conversion. This book is not a manual on how to become a Christian. This book is a master class on how to live as a Christian. This is not a pre-conversion piece of literature. This is post-conversion living. And so that's why we said earlier, we see a lot of books talk about vertical relationship. How do we, how do we uh, uh, enter into a relationship with God? This book is all about after you become a Christian, after you're in a relationship with God, how do you live horizontally with the world that God has created and loves? And so that's important to understand because we're about to unpack a lot of scripture about works and faith. And one could, could think, oh, isn't there a contradiction here? James says that you're saved by works and faith. Paul saves, you're only saved... By faith alone, what we see happening here has, is all about post-conversion living. It has nothing to do with pre-conversion salvation. So James, Paul is, is pre-conversion in, in his writing about salvation. James is post-conversion. How do you live as a Christian? James is talking about the necessity of post-conversion works. Post-conversion living, not pre-conversion works. So let's look at verse 15. Uh, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I love James. Uh, so what we see happening here is, is that James is calling us to true faith. And, and true faith has two elements. One, it moves in the direction towards God. So true faith grows us in our, in our relationship with God. If you have true faith, you move towards God. And that looks like a variety, you know, multiple things. Growing in your relationship with the word of God. Growing in your relationship with God's people. Uh, growing in praying and worship. It's not perfect, but there's an appetite for God. There's a hunger for God. Uh, faith involves that component. The second component of faith is that it moves towards people. Faith in Jesus always moves towards people because that's how we see Jesus live. Jesus always moved in the direction of people, all sorts of people, religious hypocrites, uh, the outcasts of society. Jesus always moved towards people and his heart was for people. And that looks like two things. One, living in community with God's people. And then two, being on mission for the world that God loves. And so if we have true faith, it involves those two things, is that we move towards God. There's a growing relationship with God, and there's a growing relationship with people, with the people that God loves and and the community of faith. And if one of those is missing, then it's not faith. James calls it something, he calls it false faith. That how can you claim to have faith in God, but you don't love God's people? He's saying that there's something that's half alive inside of you, that you're dead. That something is incomplete. And so the thing that James always rails against is false faith. You see, true faith is belief that involves the heart. Faith in God is not just mental assent, but it's belief inside of the heart that moves towards loving God. So what this looks like is submitting our lives to a relationship with God and then letting him be the Lord of our lives. So what that means is that you relinquish control over your life You relinquish any authority that you have, and you say, Jesus is the supreme authority of my life. And however he's called me to live, that's how I'm going to live. And whatever he's calling me to do, that's what I'm going to do, because Jesus is the master of my life. And then the things that Jesus calls us to, I mean, there's tons of things, and, and we've been sort of discussing those, but ultimately it's relationship with him first, and then living with him and like him in, in how we interact with the world. And so one thing that James is, is sort of uh, uh, speaking against is false faith. You see, false faith is, is belief that does not involve the heart. False faith is sort of acknowledging a belief in God. You're acknowledging the reality of God, the existence of God, but there's no relationship with God. There's no submission to the Lord. There, 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 there's no crossing over into lordship where you say that I not only acknowledge the reality and the existence of God, but I submit my life to him and he is the Lord and master over my life. And so to cross over from this awareness of God's existence into relationship comes through submission. That's the key word, submission submitting our lives to God. Uh, Paul says in in Romans 10, 9 through uh, 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For For with the heart one believes. With your heart you believe and you're justified. And with the mouth one confesses what the heart believes. 
With the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is true faith. A faith that involves the mind and the heart. Now, false faith is faith that doesn't work out through your life because it was never in your heart. False faith was never in your heart. It's present in your mind, but it's not present in your heart. And if you're going to experience true faith or the faith of Jesus, it needs to not only be in your mind conceptually, it needs to be in your heart. Because with your heart, you submit to God. It's with your heart that you submit to his lordship and enter into relationship, not with your mind, but with your heart. So simply having belief is the type of faith that demons have, according to verse 19. Don't you love the way James says this? You believe that God is one, you do well. You believe God is one? Good for you. Demons believe that and shudder. And so acknowledgement without submission is false faith. And there's two things that we see here. One, intellectual assent is not enough. Why? Because the demons believe. In fact, I would argue to say that the demons believe uh, better than some of us in this room. The demons believe in the Trinity. The demons believe in the word of God. The demons have an awareness of who God is and what he's done. In fact... We were in Mark a a few months ago, and every time Jesus performs an incredible miracle, uh, some sort of sign and wonder, he always tells the people that he's blessed, hey, just keep this to yourself, Uh, not because I'm concealing my identity, I just want to reveal it on my own terms. And uh, if you reveal it, you're going to get it epically wrong, and people are going to think I'm a superhero, magician, something random. I want to reveal my identity. And so we see Jesus telling the wind and the waves to be still, and guess what? Creation is obedient. We see Jesus cast out demons and tell them to go and say nothing. Demons are obedient. And we see Jesus to tell humans not to reveal his identity. And guess what humans do? Move in disobedience. Demons believe. Demons have an intellectual knowledge about God. And what that shows us is that you can claim to know who God is. You could have read the Bible from beginning to end. You could have a very uh, well thought out understanding of the Trinity and Orthodox doctrines and things that relate to God. And you can completely miss out on being in a relationship with God because intellectual assent is not enough. The second thing that we see in in this verse is that emotional experience is not enough. Even the demons believe and shudder. They're fearful. Uh, they have this emotional experience with God. And so that, what that shows us is that you can have an intellectual experience with God. You can have even an emotional experience with God where just the, the Holy Ghost rocks your world and, and you feel the Jesus goosebumps and everything's happening and you're experiencing his power and presence in such a tangible way. And now you know that God is real. But having an emotional experience with God is not enough. Why? Because emotions are fickle. Think about one of the greatest emotional experiences you've had with God ever in your life. And how is that doing, sustaining your relationship with God? I I think about some of the most incredible emotional experiences that I've had with God. Uh, I I think about some of the things that I've read about in the scriptures and I've seen in real life. And I'm like, whoa, what's happening here is real here. And emotions, woo, all over the place. And I think about the following week as I look at my faith and my faith doesn't match the emotional experience. Our emotional experience were not designed to sustain our relationship with God. They were designed to reveal the goodness and make us aware of God's love and greatness. Intellectual assent is not enough. Emotional experience is not enough. 
there's a third component that you need, and that's willing obedience. That faith, when it comes into your mind and it comes into your heart, always moves in willing obedience to live for God and with God. And that's something that the demons will never do. They have an an emotional experience. They have an intellectual experience. But there's no willing obedience to submit to the lordship of Christ. And unless you have a willing obedience to submit to the lordship of Christ, emotional experience and intellectual experience will be useless. And so James goes on to to really drive this point home. That, that faith in Jesus is more than, 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 than conceptually thinking about Jesus and, and acknowledging you believe in him. And faith in Jesus is more than experiencing Jesus emotionally. Faith in Jesus is this willing submission to give your life to him and let him be the Lord of your life. And letting Jesus literally come inside of your heart and then come out of you through the actions and through the way that you live. Willingly submitting to him. And he gives us two examples of this uh, in, in, in the Old Testament. Two Old Testament heroes, two uh, examples of faith. The first one is Abraham, and the second is Rahab. And, and what's so interesting about this story is that when we think about uh, Abraham, and we preached on this story in, in January, Genesis 22, Abraham hears the voice of God and says, go up to the Mount Moriah and sacrifice your son. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's bizarre, it's crazy. Why, this doesn't sound right. And uh, if you have any questions about that, go listen to the old sermon, because uh, I will go over time if I, if I unpack it. It's, I think it was awesome, because uh, I like that story. Uh, and, and, and so Abraham, he's had incredible experiences with God. He knows this is God, and so he willingly obeys, uh, not just with his mind, uh, not just with his heart, but he actually sees that the faith that he has in God expressed through his life as he goes up the mountain and gets ready to sacrifice his firstborn unto the Lord. Uh, and you know the story. You know how it goes. Uh, Abraham is ready. We know uh, Isaac is a full-grown man. He could have overpowered his 100-year-old father, but he willingly also practices faith by submitting himself to his father and choosing to give himself for the good of his family. And as he's getting ready to, to sacrifice his son, an angel shows up and says, no, Abraham, you, you, you've passed the test. You're good. You, you've proven yourself willing and faithful, and uh, the Lord reveals a ram, and they sacrifice that ram. And and what James is trying to show us in this story is that, yes, uh, Abraham heard the voice of God. Yes, Abraham had a word from God, but his faith was proven real because he acted upon that word. Now, think about that in in our day-to-day lives. We have the scriptures. We have the word of God. We, we, we see what God is calling us to live. We see the things that God is calling us to turn away from. But how are you doing practicing those things? How are you doing actually living out those things? And what James is, is trying to show us is, is that you can really get a good gauge on your faith by your willingness to be obedient to God's word. You can really see uh, what you say you believe in by your willingness to, 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 to live it out. And Jesus would call, you know, Jesus would, would say that you can know a tree by their fruit. And our works don't save us. Our, our, our works don't um, uh, get us a, a greater degree of relationship with God. But what our works do reveal is how much God is actually inside of our heart. How much faith is actually inside of our mind. Do we really believe what we say we believe? And, and, and 
and, and hear me, this is not a thing to sort of shame or condemn anyone. If you are feeling shame and you are feeling condemnation, we rebuke that in Jesus' name. Because Paul says, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What this is, is a moment of tough love where Jesus is showing you and revealing to you, hey, I have way more for you than you could ever imagine. Don't just read the word, live it out. Don't, don't, just, don't just sit here, uh, put this into practice. Uh, because when we actually live out the word, we live out the life that God has called us to live. And scripture says that's the highest quality of life, the life of Jesus. So we have Abraham, and, and the second example we have is Rahab, and we read about her story in uh, Joshua chapter 2. And uh, Rahab is this Canaanite woman, and, 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 and uh, the people of God are going to scout out the land that God has called them to inhabit. And, and Rahab gives them refuge, and she hides these two spies. And uh, uh, she goes, and uh, as they're sort of searching her house, she, she covers for them um, and protects them. She serves them. Um, and, and what the scripture is saying is, is that what we've come to find out about Rahab is that she knew that these were the people of God. She knew that the land that they were inhabiting belonged to God. She had this awareness, she had this understanding of God, and we see that practice in the way that she treats these two spies, in the way that she gives them refuge, in the way that she welcomes them to her home, that she not only had a faith in God, but that faith was revealed in the way that she treated others in the way uh, it was expressed through her actions. And what I love about this, these two examples is that James could have chosen uh, a thousand other different examples. We had tons of them in the scriptures, in the hall of faith, in Hebrews 11. But I believe he purposefully chose two people that, that are completely polar opposite. One is Abraham, a man who comes from great wealth and status. The father of the faith. The patriarch. Uh, who, who, who lacked no uh, earthly material or possession, incredibly favored and well sought out by others. And the second person we have is Rahab, a prostitute, one who by society has been victimized. She is literally on the outskirts of society. That's where she lives. She's been pushed to the edges. Uh, she has been uh, undignified and, and, and degraded, and yet we see these completely two opposite sort of resumes, sort of backgrounds, and it wasn't their wealth, and it wasn't their position. It wasn't their status or how much money they had. It wasn't how well they were thought of by outsiders. It was purely the grace of God calling them and choosing them and using them. And, and so what that shows us is that, is that your works, your, your best works in trying to attain salvation, your status, your accomplishments, how well thought of you are by outsiders, uh, how broken in sin you are, have absolutely nothing to do with gaining your relationship with God. It is purely the grace of God that calls you and brings you into his household, into relationship with him. And we see these two people experience God's presence. These two people experience a moment of faith that is expressed through their action. Uh, That's incredible news because it really drives home uh, this point. That God loves you in this incredibly flat relationship that is not dependent on how much money you had or, or how well you are or, or how great you are. Abraham was pretty great. Or, 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 or how bad you are and how personally you've been shamed and torn by sin. It's purely the grace of God that comes and brings us into relationship with him. And when that grace gets inside of our hearts, it comes out of us. It cannot be contained. It comes through us, out of us, uh, in our words, in our actions, in the way that we uh, treat others. Why? Because God has designed us to love him 
with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love others as ourselves. So when we get the love of God in our heart, soul, and mind, the love of God comes out of us to love others the way God loves us. And in doing so, we see this world that's broken by sin begin to be reversed and brought into harmony with God. You see, the love of God is for us and our worship and relationship with him, but also it's supposed to come out of us for the sake of others, for the sake of being in union and in partnership with God's mission of loving this world and loving the people he's created. It wasn't their status. It wasn't their accomplishments. It was their faith in God. So what do we do with this and and, and why does this matter? Uh, I want to look at verse 18. Uh, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. First sort of takeaway is that you can't pick and choose with God. And that's what we see happening in this early church. You have faith. That's awesome, man. I'm more of a works guy. Or you have works. That's awesome. I'm more of a faith guy. And we see this now. Oh, dude, that's awesome that you're into evangelism. I'm more into relationships. That's awesome that you love going and awkwardly telling people about Jesus. I prefer like the more one-on-one intimate thing. I'm picking on you because I'm picking on me too. Uh, You can't pick and choose. Uh, You can't say, oh man, that's awesome that you're into giving. I personally don't have money to give, so I'm more into serving. You can't pick and choose. Uh, That's awesome that you're into praying, um, uh, or, or that's awesome that you're into accountability. I'm more into sort of praying and doing my own thing with God. You can't pick and choose with God. You can't say you have faith and works, or you have works and faith, because one without the other is incomplete, and James calls that death. And in the, the Greek, the word is uh, 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 necros, death. And that's where you kind of get that word necromancer. And who is Satan? The romancer of death. And so when we have faith, uh, but no works, we have works, but no faith, we're literally not walking in life. We're walking in death and we're giving ourselves over to be snatched by the enemy. Because what does the enemy do? He comes to steal kill and destroy and there's something sacred there's something special about saying you have this faith in Jesus and that faith comes out of you through the way that you live your life and James says when you do both and hear me this is not to earn status in relationship with God this is not to earn salvation this is about horizontal living this is all post-conversion he says when you have both you will experience life if you do one without the other and, 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 and you, know, you have genuine faith in Jesus, you'll have an incomplete experience and you won't live the way God has called you to live. And that is disobedience. You can't pick and choose. James says, okay, uh, show me your faith apart from your works. I'm gonna show you my faith by my works. I'm gonna show you that I really believe what I believe through the way that I live my life, through the way that I express kindness and love in, in, in my home, through the way that I choose to practice being slow to anger and slow to speak, through the way that, that I generously trust God with my finances, through tithe and offering and using my resources as a blessing for others. I'm gonna show you that I truly have confidence uh, that, that God is my supreme source of security. He's my supreme treasure because I'm gonna give my love away. And regardless of how many people give their love back, it doesn't matter to me because it's me and God. And because I'm so secure and so rooted in God's love for me, I can freely give of myself to others through my works and through the life that I live because I am so cemented in God's heart for me. The call to follow Jesus is to be all in. It's not one or the other. 
It's willing obedience. Hear me, willing obedience, not perfect obedience. And this is living, living with faith in Jesus and living like Jesus. Doing what Jesus did is inseparable from faith in Jesus. There's no faith without works. So what does this mean for us? Second thing, uh, I want you to ask yourself, what is truly inside of my heart? What is truly inside of your heart? Because what is truly inside of your heart will come out of you through the way that you live. What is inside of your heart will come out in the life that you live. If you have bitterness in your heart, if you have anger in your heart, watch that come out through the way that you live. Maybe, maybe people in church won't see it, but your kids will see it. Your spouse will see it. My dog will see it. If there's anger or bitterness in your heart, it will come out of you. Uh, if there's sexual sin inside of your heart that isn't submitted to the Lordship of Christ, it will come out of you. If there is deceit and unconfessed sin in your life, it will fester and come out of you. What is inside of your heart will always come out in the life that you live. And maybe those closest to you won't see it, but something or someone else will. That is the nature of sin. Is that sin is not caged up and compartmentalized in our heart and our mind the way we think it is. It always touches something. And when it does, it destroys it. It catches it on fire. It creates a world of pain, chaos, and destruction. And that's why the call to follow Jesus is one of constant submission to the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because there's parts of our heart that need to be submitted to a relationship with him so that the things that are inside of us won't come out of us in such a way that it will breed further pain and chaos. But when we submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ, Jesus begins to have a handle on those things and redeem us and restore us so that the love with which he first loved us comes out of us and we can love the world and our families and people around us. What is inside of your heart? What needs to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ? What is inside of you? And and if you're having trouble thinking what's inside of you, think about how you lived your life this week. What came out of you? Was it impatience? Was it a specific sin you give yourself over and over to? Was it being quick-tempered with your kids and with your friends? Was it isolating yourself? Was it pursuing some sort of addiction online? What came out of you? And the root of that is what's inside of you. And Jesus has come to replace your heart with his. Jesus has died to get the love of the Father inside of your heart. Jesus has died to remove the shame. Jesus has died to remove the guilt. Jesus has died to remove the worry, to remove the fear. Jesus has died to secure his presence inside of your heart so that what comes out of you is willing obedience and life in Jesus. You see, living for Jesus, living with Jesus, is not about striving and earning to get it right. It comes first from receiving and being with him. Living in a relationship with God, putting to death what is earthly in us, Uh, coming alive and doing good works for the kingdom of God has nothing to do with you striving and trying your best to do it. It first comes with being with Jesus and letting his life get inside of you so that naturally you're living out uh, the life of Jesus because you've been with him so much. Yesterday I was uh, was here at the church and I was on the phone with my wife and 
I, I have uh, my, my, my Bluetooth headphones, my Apple AirPods. Shout out to my sponsor, Apple. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. If you're watching this, that'd be cool. And I, I had my headphones in, and I had my phone on the table back here, and I'm walking outside to, to, to check the mail, and all of a sudden, it gets sort of staticky, and Morgan's like, I can't hear you, and then I completely lose her. And then once I make my way closer back to my phone, I, I begin to hear her again. And it had me thinking uh, something really profound about our spiritual lives. You see, our Bluetooth headphones need proximity to the phone in order to work. And the same thing is true about our spiritual lives. You see, living for Jesus comes first from being with Jesus. And if you want to see good works come out of your heart, it first begins with proximity to him. Being in union with him, being in relationship with him, drawing near to him. And as you are close to him, as you are near to him, as you experience proximity with him, he begins to take hold of your life and work out through you what you can work out for your own. And it just becomes this natural byproduct of your life, his new life inside of you. Relationship with Jesus just like Bluetooth devices, need proximity to work. So where are you with the Lord? Uh, Where are you with Jesus? Do you find yourself struggling to live out a life of good works uh, the way that James has called us to horizontally live? Don't examine the quality of your action. Maybe if I get up earlier or, or, or maybe if I adjust my routine. No, no, no. Where are you with Jesus? Come to Jesus first. Come, draw near to the God who's drawn near to you. Experience with him. Live with him. Enjoy him. Uh, Be delighted in him the way he delights in you. Let that love come inside of you and consume you. And watch how the life of Jesus inside of you begins to be embodied through you and around you. Come, draw near to the God who first loved you and first came to you.